Psalm 88, you follow as I read Psalm 88 in its entirety. Before I start it, I want to point out something to you, that right above verse 1 is an annotation. Um, I don't always read those, but I hope you to know, hope you know that that is in the Hebrew text. Uh, a song, a song of the sons of court, that is in the Hebrew text. <clears throat> we don't normally read that, but it is, it is there like the rest of the psalm. But for this morning, it's particularly relevant. So I'm going to start with the annotation as we begin at it, Psalm 88. A song, a psalm of the sons of Korah to the choir master, according to the Mahalath Leonoth, a masculine of Heman the Ezraite. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my, tr- my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am accounted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more. For they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eyes grow dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord, I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do you do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in a batten? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O oh Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O oh Lord, why, why do you cast my soul away? <clears throat> Why do you hide your face from me, afflicted and close to death from my youth up? I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood of all, of a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions. <clears throat> Companions have become darkness. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God, that endures forever. Just before Christmas, we completed a three-week look at Psalm 51, which, as I hope you know, is David's famous cry of repentance after his adulterous affair with Bathsheba. This morning, we turn our attention to Psalm 88, which is by no means famous. And there's a reason. There's a reason that it's not famous. There's a reason for its obscurity. And the reason is, is that it is, along with one other psalm, Psalm 39, but Psalm 39, certainly not to the degree of Psalm 88. So in one sense, Psalm 88 is in a class by itself. Psalm 88 is one of two psalms where you find absolutely no word of hope. No word of comfort. No word of cheer. 
there is, um, <clears throat> there's nothing in there that um, causes the heart to leap. It is all about darkness. Did you, did you notice that the last word in the English, if it's not in your English translation, the last word, it certainly is in the Hebrew. The last word of the Hebrew is darkness. The last word in my English translation is darkness. Darkness is mentioned three times in this psalm. This is a psalm about darkness. And at, at, at this point, in, in the psalmist experience, the only friend that he thinks he has it's darkness. Look, look at what he says in the last verse. You've caused my beloved and my friend to turn away. My companions have become darkness. Not much in here to, um, to cause you to put on a happy face. <laughs> in fact, there's nothing in here. There's nothing in the entire psalm that would prompt you to put on a happy face. Which is, which is really so unlike the Psalms, um, because normally what we, what we think of when we come to the Psalms is that they are the places that we go for encouragement and hope and comfort and, and, you know, to find a, a verse for the day. We don't go to the Psalms to hear statements like this. For my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. Or this. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Or this, you have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. Now guys, does that bother you? Does it unsettle you that that there is this dark psalm in the Bible? What possible good could come from reading something that dark? Oh, there's a lot. There's a lot of good in it. And that's what I want to show you this morning. I want to show you the goods. The good that awaits God's people in Psalm 88. I want to show you, I don't know, it's four, five, or six. It depends on how you number them. But I want to show you four, five, or six ways to redeem the darkness. This darkness of Psalm 88, or maybe your own, your own darkness. Stay with me. First of all, guys, the Bible is not an idyllic book um, about a world that is full of noble people who are always making the right decisions. The Bible is about a paradise that was lost. The Bible describes a world where very good things happen and very bad things happen. And where people sometimes make wonderful choices, and on other occasions they make horrible choices. The Bible describes a world that sometimes makes us laugh. But on other times, it makes us cry. That is the world 
All of life is lived in a broken world where you and I are constantly choosing responses or is how is it that we should respond to various stimuli. And some of those stimuli are good and happy and pleasant. And, and in other occasions, those stimuli are awful. Guys, the, the Bible is, is never stoic, nor is it blind in its view of life. If you are looking for a gospel that is always healthy and always wealthy, you might want to rip Psalm 88 out of your Bible. Here is a place where we find that you can do everything right and everything go wrong. You want an example? Jesus. The Bible doesn't offer us a sanitized view of life. The Bible is full of stories of murder and famine and disease and depression and war and adultery and corruption and and overwhelming fear. And really, that's one of the main reasons that I believe this to be the, the, the book that God wrote. How could I, how could we possibly find solace or guidance or instruction in a book that avoided all of those issues? Now guys, having said that, as you examine your own spiritual experience, are you like this psalmist? Can you be honest with God? Are, are you afraid of how it is that you're facing all of the, 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 or the heat in your life? How you're responding to that heat? Do you wonder if God really welcomes honesty? So you, so you hesitate, uh, in bringing the cries of your heart to Him? Do you feel like you have to, to put on a good front of unwavering faith before him and his people. If you do, then you're not like this psalmist. And you have misunderstood the the nature of the Bible and the nature of Christianity in, in, in general. Psalm 88 is an invitation to honest bare-knuckled, authentic faith. In Psalm 88, God welcomes us to come in, come in out of those, those shadows of pretense and fess up to all the struggles that we encounter. And then... When we do to know this, I hope you notice this. God never censors this man or his words, some of which are absolutely over the top. There's anger, there's overstatement, but it is as if Psalm 88 has a message for us, and it's this. I am committed to this man in spite of how he talks. 
God is um, he's patient with his people. He's committed He's committed to them in a way that we're not committed back. He's far more committed to me than I am committed to him. I'm committed to you in spite of what you say. That's the first good. Secondly, I said earlier that I was going to, I was going to read that little annotation and I, and I did, and, and I, I come back to it again because it says that this is a song, that Psalm 88 is a song. <laughs> why, why would God want people to sing such a, <laughs> such a song like this? Such a discouraging dirge. I mean, what would be the point of putting, my companions have become darkness, to music? Now guys, um, <clears throat> Psalm 88, as you're told in that little annotation, is a song sung by the sons of Korah, specifically Heman. Now you know who the Korahites, the Korahites were? They're, they're described in 1 Chronicles 6 if you want to look this up, but they were musicians. They were the doorkeepers of the tabernacle. They were the, they were the guys who would lead Israel in procession as they came into the sanctuary, into the, into the tabernacle, into the tent. And this, this mournful song was to be one of the songs that they sang as they entered into the place of and the activity of worship. Now guys, do you, do you, do you see what that means? God intended the darkest human laments to be included and to be brought together with the highest and brightest of human hopes into the worship of his people. Honest expressions of fear and pain and doubt were welcome in the place of worship and grace and atonement and sacrifice. This mess of human misery was welcome in this place of mysterious, glorious grace. No psalm in all the 150, I think, more powerfully communicates, come to me just as you are. With all your doubts and with all your fears, with all your pains, with all your failures and all your discouragements... And hold before me your, your shattered hopes and shattered dreams and failures and, and, and find redemption and, and rest when it, when it seems that, that your mind is confused and your heart is weak and faith is perhaps non-existent. Come just like that. That kind of honesty before God is meant to be a part of worship. We don't have to put on a spiritual mask to approach God. We can come just as we are. This God is a sturdy love. It's a, it's a sufficient grace. And ladies and gentlemen, 
Don't you hate spiritual phoniness? You know, I think that's one of the reasons that the non-Christian world so dismisses us. Where did this idea come from? That if you're going to be the, the good Christian, I hate that phrase, good Christian, or that term. If you're going to be that good Christian, you got to put on the happy face. Where did that come from? I remember Chuck Swindoll saying something one time. He said, you know, when I stand before God, I don't know whether he's going to say, Chuck, you are a, you are a good preacher, mighty fine teacher of my word. And, uh, boy, you built some good churches. One there in California, one there in Texas. I, he said, I don't know whether they're going to say any of that, but the one thing that I hope he will say to me is that, Chuck, at least you were real. I hope he says that about me, too. I hate it. I hate phony. And there is no invitation anywhere in the Bible to reality like Psalm 88. Third, my brother and sister in Christ, um, got a question for you. Can you sing in the darkness? You know, I think you know the story of Job, don't you? Everybody seems to know. I mean, even the non-Christian world seems to know the story of Job. Job is the guy that had everything and he lost it all. You know, family and cows and land and everything. He lost, in a matter, I think of about 24 hours. I, it could have been 72, but it, it was quick. Lost everything. But you know, before that, that all happened, you know what happens, don't you? Uh, Satan comes before God and checks in because he has to. He can't do anything that God doesn't give him permission to do. But he checks in and, and um, uh, God says, where have you been? Well, I've been rolling around the earth. And, he, and God says, have you considered my servant Job? And uh, Satan's reply is this. Yeah, I, I, I considered him. <laughs> but does Job serve you for nothing? Do you know the implication of that? Do you know what he's implying, ladies and gentlemen? Satan says the only reason that Job serves you is because of what you give to him. The only reason that Job is serving you is because it pays. He's not serving you, he's self-serving. And, and I can prove it, says Satan. All you got to do is plunge a few of them into darkness and you'll see then. You'll see that you have a, you don't have a bunch of servants, you have a bunch of mercenaries. You know he's right. You know Satan is right, don't you? At least at the beginning of our Christian experience. The reason that we come to Christ is because we we want to escape punishment. And yet, ladies and gentlemen, in the middle of this pain that's being described in Psalm 88, Haman is still singing. To God. This man's emotion, whatever it is, whether it's anger or depression or fear, whatever it is, it's, it's emotion that is being directed to God. 
And he is saying, in essence, God, as mad as I am at you, I'm not leaving. Satan is wrong. Haman stays with God and he's getting nothing out of it. In fact, what he is getting is all bad. Haman is is trusting God even when he has no sense of his presence. That one decision, ladies and gentlemen, is a monumental victory for for Haman and for God. Because the suggestion that we as the people of God are only in this because of what we get out of it is at least wrong in Heman's case. God is mad as I may be at you. I'm not going anywhere. And I'm bringing it all and I'm going to throw it at you. You know, guys, I may regret what I'm about to do. <laughs> I did give it some thought at least. Because I, I really shouldn't, I should leave, you know, let sleeping dogs lie. Because the furor over that book, the shack, has pretty much died down. But ladies and gentlemen, the, you may not have listened when I said this on that Wednesday night. But the centerpiece of my offense with that book is that the message of that book allows Satan to say, yeah, God, as long as you show up, as long as you answer all their questions, and as long as you uh, uh, show them that their loved ones uh, who died tragically are happy and, and wouldn't want to come back and are off someplace enjoying a felicity and bliss, as long as you do that, yeah, God, they'll serve you. Will you serve him when he doesn't do that? Can you sing in the darkness? As mad as I may be at you, God, I ain't going anywhere. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is an immense statement of faith. That's what this is. Is it, a, it is a statement on the part of a man who's not getting anything out of his relationship with God. In fact, what he's getting is all bad. And he says, in spite of that, I'm not going anywhere. Can you sing in the darkness? Will you cut and run? Because here's a man who knows how to sing in the darkness. Fourthly, in my mind, the most upsetting and disturbing part of this psalm is verse um, 6. Really, it's 6, 7, and 8. I want you to just look at verse 6. He says... You have put me in the depths of the pit. 
That's shocking, ladies and gentlemen. It's shocking because it doesn't say, I fell into the pit. It doesn't say, evil men pushed me into the pit. It says, God, you put me in the depths of the pits. This pit I'm in, you put me in there. And then he goes on, he says it again. Uh, Your wrath lies heavy upon me and you overwhelm me. You have caused my companions to shun me. Did you know that God does that? You know, guys, we Christians are so naive about the inevitability of suffering in this life. It, it, it so overwhelms us. Now, guys, listen to me carefully, because I am not saying that your suffering is easy. And I'm not saying it's, it's enjoyable. In fact, at times, it's downright awful. But we are far too surprised by it. That's all I'm saying. Gang, God is a wiener. Not a W-I-E-N-E-R. But he's a W-E-A-N-E-R. Just like every woman in this room who has ever nursed a child. Ladies, One day, you either have or you will refused to give your breast to your child. Something that your child desperately wanted and at the time didn't think that he could live without. Why did you do such a dreadful thing? Because you're mean? Because you hate your child? Of course not. You know that the kindest thing that you could have ever done for your child at that moment was to refuse to give them something that they desperately wanted and thought they needed. You put your child in the depth of a pit. And it was the sweetest thing that you could have possibly done. My friends, God does that to his children too. And we can scream and squawk and pout as much as we like but a firm good lovingly loving heavenly father puts us puts us in a pit and it is the sweetest thing that he could have ever done. Remember that. And you might find yourself singing in the darkness. Number five. 
The first time that I was ever confronted with Psalm 88 was through another man's sermon. It was on a Wednesday night in a big room with a green carpet. Now, why is that important? It's not. What is important is that my life situation at that moment, in my own mind, matched Psalm 88. For instance, look at the psalm with me. For my soul is full of troubles. I, I thought the same thing. Verse 6. You have put me in the depths of the pit. I, you feel forsaken by God. Verse 8. You've caused my companions to shun me. Your friends seem to have disappeared all of a sudden. Verse 8b. I'm shut in so that I cannot escape. I felt trapped and a, and a bit helpless. Verse 9 through 12. My eyes grow dim through sorrow. I call upon you. I spread out my hands. Do you work wonders for the dead? I mean, what, where are you? you? You feel like you're dying and you're crying out for help and nothing is coming. Or at least I did. Verse 13, 14. But I cry to you in the morning. My prayer comes before you. It's as if God is not listening. The heavens are brass and he's turned his back on you. Verses 15 through 17, afflicted and close to death from my youth up. You feel like bad things will always happen and nothing is going to change. It's always going to be like this. And then, of course, verse 18. You wake up every morning in a very dark world. That was pretty much how I defined my life situation at that moment. Now, how it happened, and I, I, I can't really say, nor... Nor do I think I really, I really know, but somewhere, somehow, I had gotten the, the, the notion that the Christian life had no place for times like this, like, like the time that I was experiencing. So that night, through my tears, I remember hope swelling up inside of me. And the hope had, had several little facets to it. For instance, I, I discovered that I wasn't some kind of defective, inferior, subnormal Christian product. And secondly, in fact, not only was I not subnormal or substandard, that better Christians than I, Heman, and the sons of Korah, had experienced the same kind of thing. You know, misery does love company. And thirdly, that what I was going through, that this thing was a part of it. Because I live in the broken world, the Lord sometimes gives and the Lord sometimes takes away. That it was normal. You know, guys, um, you know, we had three girls. They're all grown and married and have children. And I remember as they got started getting married off, how, I mean, it, it was sad for me. I mean, they married good guys, and 
they have decent marriages, I think, you know. And But um, seeing them leave was hard for me because the thing that I missed the most as a father was our, our supper times. We had wonderful, I don't know if y'all have that anymore, but you're missing out. We had wonderful supper times. We had a table in the kitchen, and um, I sat at the head of the table, and Susie sat over here to my right, and Gracie sat on this end, and, and the Emily and Megan sat over here. And I'm telling you, you had to fight for the airwaves. We had three talkers. Does that surprise anyone? Um, everybody talked. And I have a little picture in my house that my son-in-law drew me where we're all five sitting at that table and one of our daughters, I think it's Megan, has her hand up. You know, I'm next. I mean, I, uh, and I loved those times. We, we, there would be occasions when we would go out on the back porch and we had a little table and chairs and we would sit around there and we would talk. And we didn't talk about silly things. And some of it was silly. But often it was so meaningful, so enjoyable, so rich. And, and I, I miss those times. I still miss them. On one occasion, we were having supper and, and um, Gracie was sitting at the end. Of course, Gracie was the oldest and so she normally got the, got the airwave first. And then, um, and, and when she got it, she was very reluctant to give it up. And she would talk a blue streak. Just, just in pure young fashion. I mean, she could talk. Well, anyway, it was one of those days after school, and she came home, and we were having supper together, all five of us. And she, oh, we're going to get away. The girls did this, and the teacher did that, and the boys did this, and the guys were doing Just went on and on and on. I was, you know, acting like I was interested. In. And she was just going, just this, this diarrhea of words, just all over us, you know, just. And um, when she finally finished, I said, being the tremendously wise man that I am, I said to her, well, darling, it at least sounds to me like you're normal. She got up out of her chair, came around the table. She kissed me on the cheek, and she said, Daddy, that was one of the nicest things you've ever said to me. I sat there that night and discovered I was normal. And it was one of the nicest things that anyone has ever said to me. The other part of my hope was that these guys, the sons of Korah, they made it. They made it through it. And they turned their experience into an occasion for worship.
One other thing, and I'm done. The darkness. The darkness of this psalm shows up again in the New Testament. You know that, don't you? It's in Matthew chapter 27, verse 45. The text says that at about the sixth hour, which was about noon. You know, it's not, it's not unusual when it's dark and it's nine o'clock. But it's unusual when it's noon and it's dark. It was, of course, it was describing the moment, of course, when Jesus was being crucified. Because, ladies and gentlemen, listen to me. Jesus got the ultimate darkness. Total darkness. Jesus was the one who could say and really be true. Darkness is my closest friend. Why? Why did he, why did he get that? He got total, utter darkness so that our darkness would only be limited and temporary. We only feel abandoned, but we're not. Jesus Christ was abandoned, and he said so. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But in the midst of being abandoned, he didn't abandon me and you. He got the total darkness, the utter darkness, so that you and I would never experience a total darkness, a hellish darkness. Jesus was abandoned so that we wouldn't be. Is that the Jesus on whom you fix your hope for everlasting life? Our Father, I pray that you will remind us that um, darkness is a part of it and that you are not going to be knocked off your throne because we're angry at you and that you will um, remind us that um, that the real darkness is over. Ours is limited and temporary. And though we feel abandoned, we're not. Remind us that the only abandoned one is the one on whom we fix our whole hope of life after death. Jesus Christ in all of his beauty. We pray, of course, in his name.